You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Uh, but I am talking to Aaron Eiselman, who I have known social media for years. He's a fellow libertarian, and we've ran in the same uh, you know social circles that way. But we've actually never spoken um, in person, so it's nice to hear your voice, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a trip to uh, converse non-textually, yeah. Yes. Um, so a little bit about yourself. Um, I know that you're a libertarian. Um, I don't know what kind you classify yourself as. I know that and you don't have to have a flavor if you don't want to. But um, I know that you're a fan of objectivism, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, um, you know, what was your path to liberty? Right. Well, yeah, it's it's something, you know, I've tried to trace it myself, like where exactly it came from, because there seem to be like so many different things that I can pull from in my memory. I think the first time I ever heard of libertarianism had to have been either Penn Jillette, uh something to do with Penn Teller, or it uh-huh. was actually Glenn Jacobs, the uh, okay. mayor of Knoxville, you know, uh, Mayor Kane, that uh probably reading Wikipedia and seeing that Kane was a libertarian. That might've been my first time hearing that word. Um, your, your voice. I just, it's tripping me out, Aaron. I'm not gonna lie. Oh, by the way, I'm, my show's market explicit. So we can say bad words if we want and you can say whatever the hell you want. Um, oh, but you, it just does not match you. Like, uh, like, so, you know, you get this idea of somebody on the internet and you're so well-spoken <laughs> and really intelligent, well-read. And um, I consider yourself, like you, somebody that I would go to for like information from like a classical liberal or just, you know, a real a kind of a Renaissance guy. <laughs> no offense to Southerners, but the Southern accent is not what I thought I would hear. <laughs> no, yeah, that's no, that's perfectly. Yeah, that, that's a very common assessment. Trust me. Yeah, you know, it's it's insane, actually, because like here in the South, I'm considered to have like little to no accent. Like they think I sound like a Yankee or whatever, but like everywhere else, they're like, wow, that's strong. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I have like when I started, you know, doing lives and then eventually doing a podcast and whatever, um, people were like, oh, I had no idea. You Are you from Minnesota? Are you from New York? I'm like, no, I have a Midwestern accent from Ohio, but apparently they think it's really like a Yankee accent. I don't know. I didn't think I had one. I thought people from the Midwest had pretty plain voices, but I guess not. <laughs> uh, well, so anyways, I interrupted you. <laughs> it was just cracking no, I, me up. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I could, I could uh, yeah, I could, I could go on and on about it, but I think mainly I didn't really engage with like politics in a way that was serious until probably shortly before the 2016 election. I had always categorized politics as something I didn't even want to be involved in, but it eventually came a time where like learning about philosophy and science and other things intersects inevitably and uh, inextricably with politics. So sooner or later you have to face down the demon and, uh, I came into it as kind of a default leftist, you know, I I always had kind of a, I guess like hippie punk leanings that were just completely culturally defined. And I never really thought about the political concepts that went along with them. Uh, I mean, I went from, it it was a quick thing too, when I started to go down the path of uh, libertarian buzzwords and Googling different things and whatnot, uh, it was a quick path from voting for Bernie Sanders in the uh, 2016 primary to voting for Gary Johnson in the general election. Uh, you, you know, it's funny that you say that because there's this huge, uh, there's a lot of infighting, which there always has been, but it's been, it's pretty heated as of late in the libertarian party and it's this left versus right thing. But I think it was even Larry Sharp, who's pretty right and pretty conservative, I would say, in my opinion, um, says that a lot of times people from the left, you know, people are like, it's easier to reach the right. But when people become libertarians from the left, they stay. They don't go back. Um, And so he finds that with the party, at least, not necessarily just the philosophy. My husband came from the left. um, You know, he voted for Obama, grew up. And it was more like that. You know, he was a a poet and really into like, you know, he grew up as an atheist in his family, although he's not now. so he just assumed that that he was supposed to be a leftist, and then he, uh, you know, started studying philosophy and realized that he was a libertarian. So, do you believe that? Do you believe in a small government, or do you believe in no government? 
Oh, definitely. I, I think government is a legitimate concept. I think there ought to be a government. I don't view it. Um, you see, this is an interesting thing. These days, I've gone. I've got to the point where I would only classify myself as a libertarian in the most general sense of not being an authoritarian. Like, if we're talking about that spectrum, I'm definitely on the libertarian end of the spectrum. But oh. every other thing that it seems to imply now... I don't exactly associate myself with. And a big part of that is this kind of a puritanism about anarchy. I've met a lot of thoughtful anarchists, a lot of philosophical anarchists, but I've met just as many very dogmatic anarchists and they kind of hold the idea of the state being the great evil as their catch-all answer to the world in the same way I think as anybody with a catch-all explanation for the world employs that. And, uh, I, it's something I that, agree. <laughs> I am an anarchist yeah. and I quite agree. <laughs> well, I, I think that any perceptive anarchist would have to see that that's a very common problem for anarchism as a movement, as a argument. A, a lot of these people don't argue. They are purely rhetorical. They, they mm -hmm. kind of just generate things that they hold as axioms in their head. And it, it's a common thing to say. I know I'm not the first person to iterate this, but it, it is essentially just talking to someone as opposed to really having a conversation with them. It's essentially just like, why aren't you already smart enough to accept this philosophy? And, uh, right. Yeah. And, and I got not really with planting it. seeds that way. Um, which is something I've always believed in, even when I, you know, sometimes I can be just plain old obtuse in my, cause I just get tired, you know, but you have to plant seeds or actually really engage somebody. And I've changed my philosophy on a lot of things that I thought, oh, well, this is steadfast. This is the truth. And, you know, that I'll never change from this because this is right. And then, you know, listening to people, I realized that I was probably wrong. And there's a lot more nuance to things than just the state is evil. I don't believe in violent coercion. There's just a lot more to life than that. <laughs> well, yes, I think that that's people kind of use this in the same way that, you know, it's it's strange the blind spots people can have because they can perceive it clearly in, let's say, like leftist sort of Antifa strains of thought. They can see the cultishness of that, the dogmatic nature of that, but they can't identify any strain of that in their own behavior when it's so clear to me that like one of the major paradoxes of this politically obsessed libertarian movement is that the, the group think that emerges is so lethal to the idea of individualism, which everyone in this conversation is paying a great deal of lip service to. So really we're examining, we're like, who actually has the follow through? Who really is an individualist? Who's actually thinking in a first-handed way? And it's disappointingly few people <laughs> um, proportionally. Yeah, you know, I've I've come to have a lot of respect for a lot of my agorists, or some people say agorist friends, um, because they just decided to just live what they believe and not really. Most of them don't spend their time spouting off at people online or play, they don't play political games. And so I think, in a way, I think that's one of the purest um, types of libertarian. Really, it's just somebody that just lives. As, as far off the grid as they can and tries not to engage the state and live peacefully. Yes, yes. There's, so, there's some real um, daylight between, uh, between that form of anarchism or that school of thought, really, because I think that that has elements that are kind of separate from even the concept of anarchism. There's a lot of, like, ethical consideration that goes into that kind of thought. Yeah, um, and, but I like really pretty nice things, and I'm a capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> No, look. no, I think that's all part of life, too. Uh, the, these guys, I think that there's a healthy element of that where you are focused on self-improvement. And I really think at the end of the day, that's the thing that's shifted my thought so much to the point that I don't even really, you know, I'm at a place and it sounds utterly exasperated. It probably is. But I don't even really want to hear the word libertarian like ever again. <laughs> People just say it and say it and say it. And it's this kind of thing. And it's that kind of thing. And why don't you believe what I believe? And you it's know, all it's, to me. Aaron, it's funny because I'm on the We Are Libertarians network, but really our the creator who spent years in radio and has a large show and grew. It's, it's a large network. He's put like a lot of work into it over 10 years. Um, 
he stopped calling it we are libertarians calls the big show the chris spangle show he's been and then changed it to wall we are libertarians which is a nickname because he had the same sense that this word was just inviting people to think of the worst people that they knew and he's more about reaching out to newbies which is why i like the stereo app because it's all normies and people that have never heard of what we're talking about most people on here don't know what we're talking about but they're actually like ask honest questions about it so um, right so that, that's okay. So I kind of understand your philosophy, but we're going to talk about something called objectivism. I really find few, fewer and fewer um, libertarian, maybe even conservative paleos or anarchists that really understand the philosophy. They all just want to burn Ayn Rand alive anymore. And it's so right. such a shame to me because you don't have to believe every single thing a person says to know that they had really awesome points and just a really great way of looking at things in life. Um, so your, what would you call the philosophy of object, objectivism if you could narrow it down into a paragraph or two? Well, the, um, if, if you just, first of all, objectivism is the philosophy of Ayn Rand. So it's, you know, it is what Rand thought and what Rand said approximately. Uh, of course, there's all kinds of different evolving applications of the principles of, of objectivism as you're living life. And as, you know, science evolves and the field of knowledge increases, but it is what Rand wrote. So anything beyond that, what people, you know, people try to have people, there are even people who consider themselves Christian objectivists and they put all kinds of spins on it. I'm an anarcho objectivist. Yes. You're, you're not really. <laughs> but I, I know what people want to do. Everything these days is create an ideology. You just throw them together. You just. But that's hey, that's the thing that sell people books find and not have to punch the clock, Aaron. I can't hate. On right. It. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it sure generates subreddits and various yeah. things like that. But um, no, objectivism comes down to five main things. It's metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics and aesthetics um, and metaphysics existence, reality, existence exists. Reality mm -hmm. is what it is. It's, uh, you know, people can take this for red. But I think a lot of the dysfunction in people's uh, personal philosophical thought and ethical conceptions of things comes from the fact that they really haven't identified and examined their first principles. I mean, if you haven't truly introspected over like reality itself, have you even really begun to build your foundation for who you are, your identity? Uh, that's something that I find fascinating about the entire question of it. I'm Rand, basically takes philosophical tradition since Aristotle and says to hell with like 98% of that. We're yeah. going back to what is knowledge? Where are we? Are like, what even is our interface with reality? And that gets to epistemology. How do we know? And that, and there Rand says reason. Reason is the only means of knowledge available to us. You contrast that with mysticism, the non-rational, the non-sensory mm -hmm. claim on the means of logic. And those two, the metaphysics and epistemology, give you the ethics of selfishness. And this is the part that really changed my life. And uh, it's the part that gets everyone suspicious about Rand. It's the part where the mm -hmm. cultish image that's been applied over the years gets labeled at objectivism because this is the part that really messes with people's conception of things and it leaves a mark on them either a strongly positive or negative one well what's ironic is there's um uh in christianity you know there's obviously a million different little philosophies in there but i don't know if you know anything about calvinism but i consider it very much saying that you know virtue that people are born a certain way and they can't control the fact that they are there's no spiritual thing that's going to make them better besides Christ. So they're giving this basis that people automatically will be selfish and that's the human condition. And it's kind of true in a way, um, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's labeled as a sin, but um, it's still, I, I've, I've always thought of that, that especially growing up in a very Christian household. And then when I started to turn my philosophy and faith, you know, trying to see threads of truth for, through all of that. Right. No, I find that very interesting, though. And this is something I've always wanted to have a conversation with someone that, you know, th there are a lot of people that heavily appreciate the ideas of Ayn Rand and the sort of concepts that are in objectivism, but they mix it with their own kind of uh, background and their own sort of uh, 
primary ideas about things. And a lot of that for people is religious. And it it's it's always to me, it's it's incredibly interesting just because objectivism is so flatly opposed to the mystical, to anything in the non-rational world, which, you know, religion broadly falls into that category when we're talking about things that don't interact with the world, such as culture or whatever. Right. Uh, and that's where, you know, you get social structures and how, how is society structured and what do we do in lieu of religion if we don't have religion? How do we, you know, have a, a, a positive frame of morality without religion? And these are all questions that I think, like, it has to be somewhat of, like, a conflict or or, or is it? Like, I wonder. Like, how, how do people integrate these ideas? Um, take, for example, like altruism, the idea that Ayn Rand is most heavily opposed to, the idea of self-sacrifice. Yeah, she thinks you're a pitiful you can... little man if you, <laughs> if you sacrifice yourself, then it doesn't benefit you, basically. Right. Well, think of the central image of Christianity, Christ on the cross. That is essentially an epitomization of altruism as Ayn Rand sees it. And yes, except for I would say, even if you, you know, don't necessarily believe that, um, you know, Christ was the son of God or he was just a philosopher, or maybe you don't even believe he actually walked the earth, his, his story does. And so in, in that story, even Christ was exalted to heaven, whether he actually was or wasn't or what it doesn't. So in the end, he did something that got him somewhere. <laughs> so even Christ served himself, which he thought he was God and you know, people believe he was. So isn't that, isn't that right. really I think, not I think altruism? Though you, you did. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's definitely a good try that you've just pulled off there. Um, <laughs> no, I think that you'd have to go deeper into the fundamentals of it because the, the framing, of course, of this, I mean, there, there are lots of fundamental questions about religion that are touched by the sheer dismissal of religion that's contained right. within objectivism. For Rand, it's very flat. Reality is what it is, and it's very apparent that there's no supernatural dimension to it, and that just dismisses all religion. A lot of people have a very, very hard time with that. Right, uh, and I wouldn't say me, I necessarily part... agree with that, but I think it's a really good way for me to strip down some some things that I really do. I really believe this. Do I know what is truth? And a good way to look at the world and people's intentions. It's a great way to understand how people work. Right. And there, there's a heavy psychological element to morality and ethics as it's practiced. So I think that that's a that's a heavy part that we get to here. And it, it kind of touches on what we were talking about earlier, because like as I'm going down like this list of things that are contained within this philosophy, you're seeing that it touches pretty much every element of life. It's not really about what you think. It's about a system or mode of thinking. And that is what I feel is missing from the conversation these days. People really want to talk politics. They really want to have a position on every little issue and be morally convicted about it with the full power of righteous justice. But they don't want to do the fundamental groundwork to even figure out what it is they believe. Yeah, you make poor arguments that way. Well, what about, well, what if this happened? How do you think of this? Or should we say no to this? Or should we ban this? Or, but what if, you know, my kid walked onto your property and drowned in your lake? You'd be violating that. It's like, what the fuck are we even talking about at this point? Let's just get down to the basics, you know? Right. And so much of it is purely <laughs> hypothetical, purely theoretical. It's all, you know, um, Rand had a great essay called The Ethics of Emergency, which was all about, you know, the sort of philosophical brain teasers or, you know, um, kind of gotcha questions that people throw out there, your little trolley dilemmas and such. And she, you know, in a controversial move, just throws that all aside and goes, listen, that's not real life. We're talking about a philosophy for being a human being, for living on earth, for interacting with reality. We can't deal in crazy hypotheticals that might happen, but would have to be considered drastic emergencies and anomalies right. and totally outside the realm of normal ethics. So the conversation has to get serious. We can't sit here and talk. I mean, I know we love our memes. I know we love our recreational nukes. I know we love our <laughs> child slaves and, you know, sponsored police forces. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's all lovely and it's all hilarious. And I'm, I'm glad we're having fun, but 
there has to be a serious conversation somewhere underneath all that. And a lot of these folks don't know where to draw the line. And it's pretty clear to me that it comes from a hole in, in the fundamental nature of the conversation. People are not doing the basic is ought fact, reality, ethics, morals work. They're doing the pontificating, the skipping to the end where you get well, that, to brag hard and work. boast that's and enforce. <laughs> yeah, that's hard work. And I also don't think it's encouraged much anymore. You know, we have instant gratification a lot. So there's not a lot of time spent studying anymore um, well, or just with your own thoughts. You know, you're constantly right. bombarded by other people, like, and not well, deep thinkers. <laughs> you're bombarded by which, God, I love them, memes. Which, real quick, Aaron, for anybody looking, I think this page is still up. I think it's David Gates, one of his pages, um, one of the Liberty Memes brothers. But it's called Tales from Straw Man Kapistan. And it is, <laughs> it's like what, what people say the worst thing that anarcho-capitalists would do in a, like, you know, a free society like that. And right. it's hysterical because it pokes fun at you know, they're, they are anarcho-capitalists, but it's, you know, like talking about recreational McNutes and, you know, when the neighbor's <laughs> kid accidentally fell on your lawn and you shot his leg off. <laughs> right, of right. So anyway. Right. No, these that. are the questions. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's part of the whole conversation now is very limited to surface level concrete things that people can just perceive right in front of them. It has to be very immediate. It has to be almost always sensational something's that's something that's designed to grab people's attention and manipulate their capacity to reason they're they're i mean people are being fed things that are there just to piss them off everyone wants to talk about the algorithm and how threatening it is but at at the end of the day we're all in control of this experience you don't have to feed it you don't have to be there there's all there's nothing and, and the algorithms are terribly, terribly bad at predicting people's behavior. They don't if if you notice what they advertise to you, it's not always the most accurate or uh, relevant thing on earth. I've I've seen more than a few meme pages devoted to the oddities that people have had advertised to them. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all know it. That this thing is not really as threatening as it's being made out to be in our beloved Netflix documentaries and yeah. whatnot. This is this is all a reversal of what our reality really is. And I think that it's done largely on purpose by people who influence society because they're very aware that a lot of our culture is built on contradictions and the way to keep people away from their own capacities, the way to keep the unearned wealth that so many uh, have in this current system is to keep freedom, true freedom, the ideal of liberty completely untalked about just out of the conversation it's eliminated because people cannot think in concepts they only think in objects they're only dealing with immediate reality they're not dealing with the idea right and that's why we get a a, a, a culture obsessed with politics that doesn't really talk about philosophy or what's behind any of those ideas well and and, and sometimes we'll, we'll sit and focus on the smallest thing and, you know, um, like on the big show on the network, you know, it's a lot of politics and, and like latest news, Try you know, and it's good to keep up on that kind of stuff. But sometimes I'll sit back. Do you ever just get that moment where you're in a room with people and probably people that are kind of stuck in the um, left, right <laughs> dichotomy or whatever? And I'm like, why are we even talking about this? Because across the globe, like there's there's a million children starving to death and we're talking about, you know, some little part of some bill that was passed and how we're going to, it just doesn't make much damn sense to me sometimes, but no, no, it's a, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's I a just, distortion. I mean, not philosophy more, more so than current events, but um, to, to uh, sometimes to my dismay, but it's easier to just live in the now. Well, yeah. I mean, to the, the primary thing is to deal with that, that, uh, that which actually benefits your life, what what's actually of quince to you and your values, like it, it's there is no real thing if if you're being completely honest as, as term self interest. Everything at the end of the day is about how you live, your mode of living, and this I I don't see how it's not manifestly obvious to anyone that this 
kind of a obsessed, paranoid, hyper-reactive, super-sensitive, very touchy online political culture is healthy. How could it possibly be? Right. It, it, I mean, we're all, we're practically collecting and archiving and curating collections of the pain that this is causing each other. <laughs> and, you know, rolling our eyes and laughing because it's all we know how to do. When at the well, end yes. of the day, well, that's the comedy is the remedy to tragedy. <laughs> right. Um, there's, there's a great deal of that that's needed, but we do have yeah. to have the serious conversation. And a well, lot of this is how lost. It, how it's stunting young minds that ha- don't have their frontal core <laughs> completely developed. Yeah. I mean, this is, we that's what's horrifying to me. I grew up in age without social media. You know, we, well, we had AOL chat rooms and that kind of stuff, <laughs> but it was nothing that I really, you know, was, I, I had, I read books. I hung out with people, you know, behind the movie theater. We'd smoke some cigarettes and just have that kind of life, you know, that whole. And kids don't really do that anymore. Their whole world is that world. So I feel like we're developing a really scary generation of people. And I don't know how they're going to act once they become, you know, the people that are, you know, contributing more to society than us. Well, I think this is a great example of history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I think that there's something almost poetic about how scared people are now, and rightly so, of the current developments, and yet how mundane they are in the long term. If you really look at it, this is just the ultimate outcome of everything. Everything that's led up to now has almost been pathetically predictable, and yet none of us really saw it coming. None of us really saw this crazy society where children are just you know they have iphones just shoved into their hands almost immediately it seems like and and this this sort of conversation you know even is kind of tainted by a kind of um shadow of boomerism like any sort of concern (laughs) about technology or like hyper oriented fixation on all this stuff is just dismissible because of course it's just technology and it's just evolution and and that is true to a degree but what people are missing is let's just draw attention to something like carl sagan calling out in uh, the demon haunted world which i believe was published in the late 80s um kind of called out the fact that science and technology had gotten to a point even then where they were moving so far beyond the public comprehension of them as subjects and as practices that it was actively dangerous and that was decades ago Mm. i think (laughs) that this is just a a continuation and an obvious outcome of that problem going unaddressed that while it is there's no stopping it any you can't stop it it's a machine almost (laughs) there is no stopping the process it just you have to do you know this kind of comes down to ultimate um fundamental worldview questions that go even beyond what is like the tone and tenor of your philosophy. It comes down to fundamental things like, are you a fatalist? Are you a nihilist? Because a lot of people in the face of everything we're seeing in the world right now are becoming casually nihilistic (laughs) and just falling (laughs) into a kind of pit. Values are draining into the gravity of non-being and void faster than anything. It's, it's, It's utterly horrifying. If you look around, Um, and yet all this is a response to a world that as a matter of verifiable fact is the safest, most privileged time you could possibly live in. Yes. It's, it's quite ironic because a lot of people, you know, I did talk about, um, the next generation, you know, coming up and that frightens me in that regard, but we have so many uh, helicopter parents and you know, it's funny, the book that actually started, cause I read, um, Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead a long time ago because I was conservative and of course I saw it for what I wanted to see it for <laughs> not for what those novels were um, right. so it wasn't until I became more libertarian that I started reading more of her philosophy I was like oh okay um, but so going back to like um, what you know children being in the safest time I read Free Range Kids by Lenore Skenazi 
it was just, and I, I didn't know at the time she's actually a libertarian, but that's not what the book was about at all. It was about statistics and how we're hovering over our children and we're actually like crippling them because we're not letting them experience things. And it's actually the safest time in the world. A child would have to stand on a street corner and get struck by lightning like 10 times in a row, I think. Um, that's just as likely as, um, you know, them being kidnapped by a stranger twice or things like that, like, like stranger kidnappings. Um, she would just go through crime stats and like allowing your kid to sit in the car when you go in the store is actually not a horrible thing to do. And we framed it, you know, so we're all pointing fingers at other parents and, you know, nobody's letting their kids experience life. So that actually started me down a very different path, which was a weird way to come to libertarianism. Um, but so that, that is something that we could change, but instead of that, we shove devices in kids. <laughs> well, this—it's—it's so. it's always going to be a system. I, I mean, right? So, uh, Lenore Skenazy, i i know that name as having. Uh, well, she came to a certain level of prominence because of a story that was written about her, her uh, done about her because of her son. Yeah, and that I was remember the beginning of the book. That, I. I, I I, my introduction to her was a Penn and Teller show bullshit. <laughs> she was oh, on yeah. there talking we about have, helicopter. We parenting. have those DVDs at home from my husband. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, I mean, and this is the thing, right? This is um, a great example of it, what in objectivism, a big word that gets tossed around a lot is integration. And that's just because it's, it's a fundamental thing to do to integrate knowledge where you can if you figure out something in one area of life you don't need to reconstruct it all over again when you face Mm -hmm. another similar problem in another area of life and this is a great example of that we like to atomize issues we like to microscope in on things and wonder where is all this helicopter parenting coming from what are the what is the nature of this what are the characteristics how do we define it what do we do about it if you zoom out this is all just utterly symptomatic of the deeper problems that have always been here. And it's, it has to be clearly right. Because this is a case of parents transferring their issues down to their kids. And this is generational. It didn't start nowhere. Everyone loves to talk about these mythical generations of badasses that just didn't have any feelings and they were super invulnerable. And back in my day, and it never happened. All this came from somewhere. There was always a void. There was always a fragility. There was always a super sensitivity waiting to be unlocked. And there's a story to it. And until we address that story, what happened through the generations? Why did we get the self-esteem movement that didn't give anyone self-esteem? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, well, ironically, when you talk about, you know, there's a lot of like, I would consider them brutalists that are, you know, they want to go harken back to this time when people weren't so, you know, precious and breakable and this and that but i think i don't want to go back there maybe you do but i'm a woman <laughs> i don't want to live back then um, no um, so <laughs> i think they no. they blame on you know losing god in schools and this ridiculous concepts um but that's not what you're saying is interesting because you're saying it's always been there i don't think it needed to be unlocked i think it probably just had a different outlet well, the, the, they are different expressions of the same problem. That's why it, it would be beyond pointless to ask the question, would you prefer a society of super sensitive, hyper tragic people who just can't withstand any sort of criticism? Or would you rather have a society full of people who are emotionally repressed, who are violent due to their lack of self-concept who completely interface with reality in a way that makes them volatile and untrustworthy and not a good authority on anything, not an especially good loved one or a member of society. (laughs) I mean, I think we all know that the real secret of back in my day is that it never really happened. It was always just another different expression of the unhealthiness of what was lacking in society, what was lacking in culture. It, it, it's, it's a different form of neglect, an emotional <laughs> neglect that sees someone become rigid and unresponsive. And they consider themselves hardened and, uh, you know, as if this were um, battle scars and whatnot. And, and for some people who have adapted in a healthy way to what happened to them, 
I'm sure it is. In fact, I know it is. I have many personal experiences with people who've made it out of horrible situations and adjusted to the things that they've been through. But when people don't adjust, the solemn serial killer-like, you know, my mom beat me and look how I turned out. That, yes. <laughs> that's not, you know, yeah, nobody lets you watch their kids for a reason, homeboy. That's, you know, well, everybody who always like makes that argument, and I understand it's really just ingrained in, in our culture, although it's going away generationally. But like this, the spanking thing, which I just I don't I there. Number one, there's no scientific uh, evidence that shows that it does any good. And back to quite the opposite. But people say, well, I was hit with a belt and I turned out OK. I'm, and I always think that I'm like, well, <laughs> I think you're a little broken, but okay. And I was guilty as well. So, (laughs) yeah, and these are subjects, right? It's it's um, the gravity is almost toward disbelief and a sort of like comic absurdity because for those of us who understand or have thought through the ethics of it, it does seem absurd. But at the end of the day, we're really talking about child abuse, and there does have to be like a sort of conversational intolerance around this subject. If, if we're, if we're, if we're going to own up to the idea that there's any such thing as responsibility or morality at all, it has to apply to a realm like this. And it is this simple that you don't have to, I mean, this is one of these examples, right? Where there's no need to rationalize. There's no need to intellectualize. (laughs) There's no need to get super complicated about it. You can just investigate reality for yourself and see firsthandedly what is the obvious psychological nature of the idea of beating a kid? This is, this is force. That's all it is. And what is force except a, an entity, a concept, a thing that in practice and in effect and in application stops reasoning entirely. Mm -hmm. It is impossible for a child as it is impossible for anyone at any point to reason while they're being threatened with force. Right. In fact, you'll get the opposite of reason from them, just like torture that that people don't give you good information or learn things when they're being conditioned. (laughs) Right. Yes. Pavlovian conditioning is not ethical education. (laughs) It's not, it's it's desiring an outcome from somebody and not for them to learn something. You want want children to become adults, not to become you. Yes, yeah, practicing a martial art or a sport or exercising regularly, that's discipline. Doing things uh, with consistency and dedication and timeliness, that's discipline. Getting your Meditating for an hour, (laughs) that's hard for me. Yes, doing the hard things, challenging (laughs) yourself, reasoning your way to a new plane, to a new level. That is the essence. And yet, w- what is the idea behind this this abuse module? And they they don't want to call it that. They want to call it by euphemisms. And this is something that I think people who are reasonable and rational and have a moral bone in their body have to be utterly intolerant of. We have to take a George Carlin line here on euphemisms and say, none. We're not calling it discipline. We're calling it child abuse. We're calling we're calling yeah. it hitting kids because yeah, that's, that's what it, it like, is. You're hitting <laughs> you ever your see that kid. easy flow chart? It says it can right. your child it's, understand reason? Then don't hit your child, right. asshole. Can your child understand reason? Right. Yes. Then reason with him and don't the, hit him. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, and this goes to another thing, right? So examine the common catchphrases. Well, I learned my lesson. No, you didn't. You didn't learn anything because no one can learn anything while they're being threatened with force. You, you learn to be afraid of something and either find a way around it or not understand why you shouldn't do it. Just the fact that you were going to right. hit. All, all you, you understand. You only understood you were, the consequence was being hit. Right. All, all you all you've essentially done is condition in a sense, sort of like muscle memory. It's It's a thing that's not even up to you in a sense. This is past your volition. This is you foregoing your volition because you can't use it in this moment. You're accepting the reality and trying to find a way to cope with it. It's not psychologically healthy. And and this is a great example of a subject where there is a massive conversational denial around this idea and there is a false um, perception of like a golden mean that there must be uh, 
the answer, the truly logical, correct view of the subject must be some mythical middle ground between super sensitive, nerf the world, helicopter parenting, no challenges, no discipline whatsoever, and outright beating your child. Right. And it, at the end of the day, these these sort of um, mythical middle grounds are not really a thing. They're often conceived of false dichotomies. Mm-hmm. And this is a great example. There is no reason why the choices should be violence or pacifism. Right. It, it, there or in other words inaction and force there's no reason why that should be the dichotomy at reason itself gives way to a concept of ethics that can let you move through these things just apply basic ideas and you get there you don't need to rationalize this you don't need to look at scientific studies about what happened I'd smack a kid and see how they react there's your study okay boy who's got to join that study look, yeah, you know yeah quote me on that one there's a great out of context <laughs> one for you um, Aaron you brought up one of my favorite uh, comedians of all time George Carlin I think probably a lot of people mm. um on the liberty side probably agree well not everybody so do you think he was an objectivist and if maybe he was and i just don't know enough about his you know oh, life and history he really presents as one to me well in a lot of ways but in some ways you you'd it, it depends uh largely on how much of his comedy you think was reflective of his legitimate philosophy on life because he did a lot of interviews where it seems like a lot of the more fatalistic stuff that he would say in his routine was something that he actually believed. I mean, he was very big on uh, the concept of not giving a shit, which is very, very opposed to the Randian concept of what man is. But on the other hand, if you examine the man in practice, if you examine what he did in his life, he lived life in a very... Not exactly a Randian way, but in a way that would, in large ways, fall into a category of a Rand-like hero. A guy who could not be told no. A guy who just relentlessly pursued his vision. And while he talked a great deal about it, this is the thing that's so confusing about Carlin. I don't know how much of him to take at face value because he well, talked a great and deal with a comedian about... too. That that's that's hard because obviously you're going to well, you know use hyperbole and sarcasm and you know to make people laugh. You're trying to elicit laughter from people, um, you know, to connect with them. So you don't really know how much of that they believe. But in the end, I guess it it, it is the fact that there has to be some truth to what they're saying. I mean, comedians are really the only two truth tellers left in society. Right. Yeah. No, Carlin, though, if, if you look at the content of his comedy and the sort of positions that you can deduce from what he actually thinks. Uh, so there are people like Bill Hicks that if you listen to anything that they do, it's easy to see where they stand. Carlin does revel in ambiguity a little bit more, but he also throws some things out there that are very obvious. You can tell how he feels about religion, but you can also tell yes. how he feels in a way about um class society and he has some views about that that are kind of divergent with the idea of individualistic capitalism i don't know to what degree it's conscious but he definitely does have your sort of standard big business is bad sort of view well of there's things. there's something to that though um because you know a lot of older anarchists and i can't, I can't remember her name <clears throat> oh gosh was it Goulding? Um, was t- spoke about capitalism um, negatively, but what she meant was that capitalism was government or forms of that of societies that people ordered themselves in to oppress a, a different class or whatever. So she wasn't really talking about liberty or, or you know volunteerism or anarchism. So it's it's an interesting concept, and I think there's truth to it. <gasps> Gasp! I think that in a voluntary society, we still have a bunch of assholes and big problems. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 a, a big uh, thing that I think people get hung up on, and they don't need to. It's it's uh, a, a great um, formulation of it that I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's native to Amy Peacock, but I'm gonna say it's her quote um, that the only practical thing is to be an idealist, and that's mm-hmm. utterly true. But there's a way to apply that that isn't skipping to the end you don't 
sit there and obsess yourself with every detail of an ideal society when you know for a fact that where you're standing is a million miles away from that. That that abstract idea, that ideal image that you need to have. Don't get me wrong. It's it's necessary. It's it's a thing that you in a way have to have in you somewhere is the idea of what the ideal is, the ultimate ideal. And this is in so many areas of life. What your ideal about everything. What what do you think is ideal as far as like what you do in life, what you produce, what you put into the world, what's your ideal relationship, what's your ideal, you know, journey through this world. It's funny because a lot of people think about Ayn Rand and, and her philosophy and think that they consider her a negative person or a, somehow a bad person. And and it's quite the opposite, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my God. It's I, I mean, I can't I can't um, I can't tell you, you know, I, I, I think that part of the big appeal here is that it is really talking. I'm no longer in the realm of political noise all day. I I engage with philosophy itself with the with the idea of concepts and ideas and objectivism touches capitalism as a derivative it's 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 politics is just the consequence of applying selfishness moral self-interest capitalism is just the expression of that politically but one of the things that people don't talk about too much that I think is probably the most fascinating thing in objectivism is Rand's view of art, of aesthetics. She's a romantic. I mean, for a person that people try to cast in such gray, drab tones, this is a woman whose heart is on fire for the passion of life and of being. The the cons- the uh, the sort of um, the perception of her is negative comes i think this is just my it's got it's got partly <laughs> to do with that whole development but there i think that a lot of it is because she is ruthlessly critical of society as it is but her study of art reveals what's really at the core of her thought which is idealism it, she described art as and i've never heard Uh, Just let me make this note real quick. Ask anybody, anybody you know, what is art? They're almost guaranteed to answer you with some kind of bullshit because people, that's a really difficult question. And most of us have never actually sat there and tried to define it for ourselves before. But Ayn Rand put forward a definition of art. That's the first one that didn't leave me confused or feeling like it was contradictory and had me sitting there like, wow, that might be it. And that was Art is a selective recreation of reality according to the values of the artist. And that right there changed my life. I've been an artist for a very long time. I've been involved in music for a very long time. I've been a writer for a very long time. And I didn't until that moment truly understand what art even was. And now I'm looking at things in a different way and discovering exactly why it was so easy to perceive Rand as angry and negative because if you look around and you're looking for value-oriented art and things that are not gray and drab and nihilistic and rooted in a kind of dreary realism then you're probably out of luck for the most part yeah no that's (laughs) quite true (laughs) it's it's very cheap anymore I wouldn't call it art Right. I, I, and, and that is people view this as like a sort of militaristic thing, right? Like, how are you going to define what is and isn't art? Isn't this just you, you know, being the guy that says, I don't like Nickelback, therefore it's not music. Isn't this just you being Ben Shapiro and going, I don't understand rap, therefore it's not music. You know, um, and- well, it's funny you bring that up. I grew up in a, um, that was my major in college. Uh, my parents are opera singers. And so I was classically trained and raced that way. Um, and then my dad went into church music. My parents were hippies that got saved and completely changed their lives. But <laughs> I, anyways, I always thought that, you know, music, it, 
as an art form speaks to you so much more than uh, the written word, because especially if you take something with lyrics, it's like, how, how is, how do you remember things? I remember them in a song. If I hear a song a couple times, I know, you know, I can recite the entire song to you. I really can't re- recite back a lot of the books I've read. <laughs> I mean, maybe certain passages and things. So I think that art um, expressed really, it's it kind of like burns the image of what that person that made it onto the other person's soul. It really, it's it's stuck in you. You know, it's with you forever. And I just, I don't think that um, Ariana Grande is going to stick in my soul and be with me forever. Right. No, I'm <laughs> um, in the Romantic Manifesto, which is the book that collected essays concerning Rand's ideas about romanticism and fiction and art. Uh, there's a great essay called Art and Cognition where she points out the difference between music and other art forms that makes it so interesting. And this is another thing that huh. for a person that's I have painted... Not, I have not read that essay. <laughs> oh, my God. These are these are some of my favorites. Like well, the, I'm sure these we are have things... it here in the library, so I, that's going to be my next thing. <laughs> oh, right on. Yeah, no, I would recommend it to anybody. It was probably the second or third brand book that I actually got into even before the uh, fiction. Like, I was so fascinated. <laughs> Um, yeah, and she talks about how music is so unique because it reverses the normal process that you have when you interact with art. Other arts, you have an object. Um, you have a process of perceiving that object, conceptually grasping it, and then appraising it to yourself. Whereas in music, you go the opposite direction. You perceive it you feel it and then you appraise it and Hmm. after that far after all that is when you put it together as a concept in your head you can experience a song and be completely lost in it and only it it may be moments later it may be decades later that you finally understand what it actually meant to you what those words were saying to you why that arrangement of chords really spoke to you in a certain way and a brill- the line that sticks in my head here, I have it pulled up here to make sure that I've worded it correctly. Music is experienced as if it had the power to reach man's emotions directly. That mm-hmm. is such a concise, purely, it, it, it's the kind of thing people call intuitive, but it, it, it's so in a way relieving to hear someone formulate it so directly Yes, that is exactly what it is. And yeah. this, you know, this Something I love about who's... Rand <clears throat> that you keep bringing up, and it's true, she was a really good interpreter <laughs> of things for the rest of the human race. You know, I have this huge poster of all, just a ton of her quotes, um, some really popular ones. And it's just like, God, that's so brilliant. Why didn't I think to say it like that? <laughs> like, with, <laughs> with a lot of what she says, she, she interpreted uh, life very succinctly and and it she didn't you know she wasn't super verbose or anything like that um obviously she wrote right but she she could the common person could understand what she was trying to convey she's a great interpreter of life and philosophy i don't think we have a lot of those anymore oh no i think it um you know it's 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 very standard in a way it's 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 utterly predictable for the objectivist to come on and tell you how much of a great writer that Rand was but <laughs> it it seems relevant because the big a big slander on her that's always pushed off is the idea that she actually wasn't that this uh, these are massively overrated books everyone's just crazy what's the appeal i mean she she couldn't write for for anything and there was a meme. That's the edge lords that say that because yeah, it's, it's, it's come a, on, <laughs> we all yeah, it's, it's 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 fascinating to me because compare any passage, and I mean any passage of Rand's fiction, nonfiction, whatever, to these other philosophers that people venerate. Uh, bust open a page of Immanuel Kant real quick and try to say all that out loud. This guy <laughs> is as intentionally dense. As you could possibly, if he were around today, oh, yeah. people would identify him as the sort of, you know, nose in the air hipster type. Like, this is a guy trying to muddy the waters so that they seem deep. Whereas Rand wants to clear the water completely and let you see right to the bottom. That's well, if you, what's her words on. will live on a lot longer. Not that Kant's haven't, but not, not in most circles, most people, you know. Um, right. Well, his ideas are his not know. Um, <laughs> Yeah. His, his epistemology is currently uh, far more dominant. So 
He, he's but, got it for now, but I, I also okay. have that romantic idea that good ideas win in the end. And yeah, this well, I mean, you think about the philosophy of Christ. And this is, again, I say this for all people, even people that are atheists. There's a reason why his story still echoes. You know, there, there's a reason because he, he really reduced things down for common people. And he said things that other people were afraid to say. And he said them in a really good way. He taught, said them in stories. And he, like, so that's why that philosophy endures. Now, people have perverted it nonstop because that's what people do but um if you look back through history you know people that can speak to the masses and get them to understand philosophy and ideologies and stuff like that those are the people whose voices echo and and those are the people that live forever right now i think that there is a there is an element of we we do want these kind of oracle people and they come along so seldom that they're almost bound to have some lasting impression if their word ever reaches anyone. It, it spreads like wildfire. And these people, you know, clearly, like, I have a ton of uh, objections and analyses and criticisms of the ideals of various religions. And, you know, Christianity you know, is not accepted under any means. That's probably where I started. But mm-hmm. it is a given that these ideas, I mean, you, you can take the sort of Jordan Peterson route on it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you don't really have to talk about the metaphysical truth of these claims. The stories endure because I think that they address things that people needed to talk about. And while I think, and this this is something I'd, I'd be really interested to go into uh, as much as is possible. You know, I don't know what the time constraint is here or whatever. Well, you like, know what? We're going to I usually do like an hour and something show, but I'm going to do a second one with you and I'll put you on a second series because I'm home right now. I'm off work. So as long as we can squeeze it into your schedule, then we're going to do a second one so that people because usually an hour people will listen to that. So we'll do a continuation of this. So gotcha, I'll get gotcha. asked you this last question. And then um, after we get off here, I'll chit chat and find out when we can do it soon so I can put them both up together. Um, who do you think today right now is an Ayn Rand? Who is a good oracle right now? A living person. Right. You know, um, am I going to be very, really depressed? Very... <laughs> well, uh, you have to think about it on on what level, right? What is, what is exactly the context? Because we can look at it in different ways. If you talk about intellectuals, if you talk about people who are actually out there giving what I think is the right I would say intellectuals, I guess, was what I was looking for. You're right. I didn't make that clear because there's right. plenty of like, I think Joe Rogan's a great person that people listen to. I don't think right. he's an intellectual, but people like him. No, no. He yeah. That's, questions. Uh, he asks good he's questions. an interesting, he's an interesting yeah. sort of category. He's like a, he's an everyman sort of um yeah. intellectual. He's, uh, I think the the uh, Joe Rogan. I think I once heard him describe himself as a smart dumb guy, and I think that's a great description. Yeah. And I think it's a category of people that we need more of. Yeah. <laughs> 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 because most people are not going to be like the uh, obsessed with being intellectuals and everything like that, and that's perfectly fine. Everybody's going to have different values in life. What we need are people who, even if they're totally into just normal stuff and they don't care about super elevated ideas. People who have fundamental ideas about reality that don't cause them to be harmful to the rest of us. Yes. But yeah, like, and on that note, uh, intellectuals who are out there, mainly these days, uh, Jerome Brook would be a big one in, in objectivism. In his show, uh, the Jerome Brook show, he mainly talks about politics and economics. That's really mm-hmm. more his specialty, but uh, from a perspective of objectivist philosophy. And if you really talk about philosophy itself, Don Watkins is a name that's uh, out there now. And um, he's kind of making more and more YouTube content that's hmm. got more production value to it. And I'm not has familiar a really with nice... him. Right. He's a great writer and he's a really good communicator of objectivist ideas. He's, he's doing series of uh, works where he's, examining not just Rand, but people contrary to Rand, like Kant, and going through their work and trying to summarize the ideas. Uh, you know, it's it's the very thorough work that I, you know, have just uh, several times complained about people not doing. <laughs> this is an example of a guy really pursuing, like, what is the nature of these ideas? Um, yeah, there, there's not just a terrible lot of people out there, but in 
in they're usually collected around a couple of channels you can find you know the Ayn Rand Institute on YouTube mm -hmm. or the Ayn Rand Center UK I be think careful, they have be careful if you google Ayn Rand people because some places will use her name and they have absolutely nothing to do with her oh, when right. you read their yes content. and and a lot of the things you're immediately going to get are going to be slanders and various mm -hmm. articles over the years trying to you know denigrate her reputation and yeah. things like that at I'm not a person, I'm fairly new to this thing of objectivism, right? I've only been in it a couple of years. I'm not, um, one relieving thing about it is that I'm not in the label game of a hyper-obsessed political libertarian movement anymore. And I don't particularly care if someone thinks I'm a real objectivist or what it is. And I don't <laughs> find that other objectivists that I talk to, they're not concerned with that kind of a thing. They don't, so you're not, you're not the author of the the only real objectivist <laughs> right right yes I, I'm, I'm i'm just as um i'm just learning uh, the, yeah. you see there's there's um there's a kind of terminology that some people use uh in objectivism where they refer to themselves as a student of the philosophy rather than just i am an objectivist it's kind of the consideration of like <laughs> in my crazy mythical brain it sounds like a jedi padawan system it's like there there are certain few people who've been around long enough and studied these ideas long enough that we can say that they're authorities on this philosophy. The rest of us are students. We're all just learning. And I don't yeah. view this as some dogma. If I, the minute I think that I'm Rand's wrong, I'll be the first to tell everyone right now, as I sit here, I think she was fucking right <laughs> <laughs> about <laughs> nearly everything. <laughs> and, and I actually, um, not just for the facts um, of, of what she wrote and her philosophy and how she translated it. Her as a person, I find very interesting. I know, I know everything about her life, so you can't shock me if you think that I've got some weird conservative, you know, panties that'll get in a bunch or something. Um, but uh, the facts of where she came from and the fact that she was a woman, and it was just so very strange for her to consider herself less than a man. Like, I don't think that was really on her radar. And so to just go forth so boldly with, with this philosophy that but people were like, oh, what? And like, you know, it was a very conservative society. It was a very uh, religious, like Christian-based society. I just, she just had such big balls for a woman. I just. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's, yeah, she's very inspiring as as a person herself. And that, it's a double-edged sword because people get obsessed with the person and in yeah. doing so they completely, She was you know, also really fucking weird and that's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and people use that to try and, you know, disregard and discredit the ideas that she had. And um, a lot of that argument takes the form of, well, she didn't live her ideas. That is complete nonsense. This is a woman who saw totalitarianism in her earliest formative years and knew what it meant, and knew what it meant to reject it, to flee it, to actively rebel against it. This is a woman who had nothing, who learned another language and, and learned to write, in my opinion, masterfully in it, to speak masterfully mm -hmm. in it in her wildly distinctive accent, and to be this <laughs> charismatic person who just went around as much as she could making her way in the world as until she dropped and she kept working and kept doing it until she dropped. I don't know how that's not an Ayn Rand hero. She was her own hero, you know, yeah. and that's an inspiring <laughs> example to me. Uh, and, you know, anybody who says, well, she didn't live her principles. My reply is always, if you drove on the road today, shut your mouth and go away. Because I just don't, <laughs> I have time for that. I don't argue about that dumb stuff anymore. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this episode up, but I want to get with you and go back into a little bit deeper into objectivism and um, I'm going to ask you a few Randian questions of people that argue in the objectivist camp about. Um, so, but right now, uh, while we're ending this episode, because I'm probably going to toss this up on the podcast because it was so much fun. Um, what are you doing, Aaron? Do you like a social media following? Um, do you, what projects are you working on that people can check out? Yeah, look, uh, I'm mainly just a musician. That's kind of just what I do. And um, I'm not super uh, self-promoting about it. But if you do want to follow me on Twitter and get odd objectivist opinions and musical opinions and commentary about wild pro wrestling and lots of bullshit and whatever, <laughs> then 
I'm on Twitter at uh, Aaron U Bitch U. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have uh, YouTube.com slash Rabid Records TV, two Bs, R E C K, because I'm an edgy teenager at heart. Rabbit Records TV, and that's where I put all my uh, music, even the old embarrassing demos. It's all there. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've been thinking about people have been show. telling me. To, yeah, people have been telling me to do podcasts and things like that forever. It may be that, you know, um, I start talking about philosophy and politics and things more through those channels. But, you know, who knows? I, I kind of like to keep it to uh, the art, but. We'll see. Uh, all right, then everybody go follow uh, Aaron. Click on everything. Subscribe because it always helps to get subscribers because eventually he can monetize things. I don't know if you do now or not. Um, and that helps, especially if you want to help an artist out. Um, until next time, because we'll have another episode on this. I just want to say peace, grace, and love to you all and fuck the state. <laughs> That's a good way to end. <laughs> All right. All right, Aaron. I'll catch you over on the flip side. <laughs> Word to the street. Peace.